Yeah, I, I lead the team with the um, campus evangelists at UTAS with the AFES ministry there. Both Focus, which Luke Hansard leads. They saw the... Praise God. Uh, a new ministry amongst subcontinental Asian students, Indians, Nepalese, Pakistanis and so on. That's a very new ministry. They haven't seen anyone come to faith, but they have a room of up to 40 or 50 um, non-Christian Muslims and Hindus coming every week to, to read the Bible in their own language and hear it taught in English. Um, so please be praying that God will do a work in that new ministry. And then the Uni Fellowship of Christians, which works with local students and those with... Um, English is a first language. So the, the Christians from UTAS send you greetings. Um, they greet you with the culturally appropriate equivalent of a holy kiss. Um, and uh, I mean, Simon was speaking about uh, the conversion, uh, the coming to faith of me and a whole group of friends about um, 18 years ago, or 20 years ago really, in the late 1990s. And it's been very exciting this year to see a couple of local students come to faith, well the last few years really, um, but one of them this year especially reminded many of my friends as they read the testimony of Eve, they go, oh, this reminds us a lot of the kind of stories that would happen many years ago um, uh, at UTAS back in the 1990s. It's a great story. Some of you would have um, received that in our prayer newsletter. If you'd like to, I can um, send that on. Perhaps I can forward that to uh, the, the elders or something and then we can forward that on to the church for your encouragement. It's, it's great to see God at work and it was wonderful for her. The, the two things that struck her, one was the challenge of the Bible taught, which confronted her assumptions, her presuppositions, a sermon on the parable of the sower, which said, if you have ears to hear, then hear. Don't be close-minded to the, the word of God, but hear as long as you have ears to hear. Challenged her to go, oh no, I'm going to have to be open-minded about Christianity. <laughs> on the one hand, being challenged by the word of God, and on the other uh, being won over by genuine loving Christian community uh, were two big things in, in God's work in her life. We're really encouraged and excited to see these, uh, these signs of new life and praise, praise with us, but also pray that God would, would turn this, this stream into a river, um, both amongst the international students and the locals. We're really encouraged by that. Um, we're also thankful, I think you heard from um, Christine a few weeks ago, joining our team, and, uh, and that's great to have Christine as well as um, Alan, who's coming back from Moore Theological College, um, from Wellspring Church, he's, he's coming back to Tasmania. After a few years of a smaller team for our locals, um, it's great to, to have more staff, senior staff, uh, to bring a stable ministry there, so that's really great. Um, and can I just say, if, you, if you're coming to uni next year, or if you know people who are coming to uni next year, or if you meet people who, as they move to Hobart, find Cornerstone as a home church, we'd really love to also help connect them, uh, connect you, if you're coming to uni, with the, um, with the Fellowship of Christians on the campus to pray and encourage and support and help each other share your faith um, with, with your friends. Because one of the great ways to stand as a Christian in the university environment is to actually stand up as a Christian. Um, and at the start of each year, we have a pre-season conference, time to get to know other Christian uni students and build relationships. We'd, we'd love you to take advantage of that, and we'd love your help in helping uni students find out about that. That'd be really great. And then a final little thing is, um, some of you already know, I had a book published this year, The Good Life in the Last Days, Making Choices When the Time is Short. I think that a book club in part of this church used this as their book, is that right? Maybe. Um, anyway, I have a few copies of this, so if you would like one, you can get it 
cheaper from me than you can from the bookshop as a donation to our campus ministry. Um, and it's about the tension between living for Jesus in the light of eternity and the everyday joys and duties of life in the here and now. How do those two things fit together? How do you live in the light of eternity without burning out yourself and your relationships in the present? So that's, uh, that's available if you're interested in that. Let's now turn to Romans chapter 9, shall we? Romans chapter 9. I'll, I'll pray again just briefly as we come into this passage. And um, we'll actually skate through 9, 10 and 11 this morning. But we won't be doing absolutely every verse. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we come and ask you now to speak to us through your good word. May I speak truly and rightly. But may your spirit help us all discern what is true reject what is false, and do a work of making us hear, not only with our ears, but with our minds, our hearts, our souls, to receive you, to trust you, to repent and turn back to you, and live in your ways, in the light of your promises in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a very tricky passage, Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11. Uh, For example, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9 are surprising to us, shocking to us perhaps, Not verse 9, verse 11, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Before they'd done anything, good or bad. Verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Or verse 18, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. But hang on a second, aren't I responsible for me? Aren't you responsible for your life, your listening, your trusting, your obeying? And now this passage says God does it all. How do these two things hold together? Is there genuine human responsibility and, and, uh, and, and will and decision and, and so on? Or are we all just kind of robots in God's great plan. It's a strange passage. But the interesting thing is, the passage is not primarily about that. The passage is not in the first place. It's not that we begin chapter 9, and and, um, the Apostle Paul says, now everybody, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, let me tell you about the doctrine of election and predestination. And he doesn't then go, the first thing I want to tell you about election is, the second thing, no, No, the passage is actually about the relationship between Jewish people and Christians, between Jewish people and Christians, and some Christians who aren't Jewish people. How do we make sense of this? God made a promise to the people of Israel, uh, to Jewish people and those who were brought into the Jewish nation. Then some of those became Christians, but many didn't. Some of those Jewish people became Christians and accepted Jesus as their promised saviour, but many didn't. And then a whole lot of people who weren't Jewish people became Christians. And it's asking this question, why, how, what's what's God doing in all of this? It's a big theme of the whole book of Romans. 
Right back at the very beginning of Romans, um, Paul begins to talk about first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That means someone who's not a Jew. Right back at the beginning, all the way through this theme, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. Uh, how How does the law of Moses relate to the promise of the gospel? All the way through the book. And now we really reach a point when he says, let's talk about this in detail. I've mentioned it, it's come up in passing, now let's really dig in deep. How do Christians think about the Old Testament people of Israel, the law of Moses, God's promises there? How do we make sense of this? It was an important issue for these churches in Rome, um, partly because actually that, that church itself, it seems to have been that it began as a Jewish church and then slowly became more and more a Gentile church, so that there were a lot of Gentiles and Jews. We get a clue to that in Acts 18, where we're told the Jews were kicked out of Rome for a while. So what began? Imagine, for example, if this church here, um, we we had uh, suddenly a law came about that said all the people with white skin from European backgrounds must leave Hobart. And then everybody here who wasn't from, with white skin, not from a European background, stayed. And then five years later, all of those, of those of you with white skin who chose to come back to Hobart, you'd come back, the church would look different, wouldn't it? The, the food, the drink, the songs, the who's up the front, the way of... so It would look very different and it would be a rude shock. Uh, so that's part of what's happened here, social problems, but it's deeper than social issues. It's Bible reading issues, theology issue. How do Christians read this first chunk of the Bible? Is this a Christian book or not? Yeah? How do the Old Testament laws and promises and hopes relate to Christians? Are we Jewish in any kind of way? And if there's a Jewish Christian here, are they still special? Is there a specialness about being a biological Jew anymore? How do we understand God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's judgment in his dealings with the people, the children of Abraham, the people of Israel? Yes, it's it's not just just abstract philosophy. It's very important Bible reading, uh, promise of God issues, character of God issues. And it's stuff that ends, did you notice in chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, it ends in praise, It doesn't end in late-night, depressed, overwhelmed, philosophical despair. It ends in praise. At the end of this discussion of election and predestination and Jews and Gentiles, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counsellor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him? Are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So let's see how we can go with it, shall we? And the first place what I want us to see is, um, uh, especially in chapter 9, that God's purpose has always, even in the Old Testament, has always been to choose to save some, not all. God's purpose, uh, even in the Old Testament, has always been to choose to save some and not all. We see the problem there at the beginning of chapter 9. The Apostle Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow 
an unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Oh, if we could speak that way, huh? For the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption of sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises, theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. God made a promise to Abraham and his biological children and through them to the world. God made a covenant, a contract with the biological people, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob at Mount Sinai, that they would be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The Messiah would be a descendant of David, the king of Israel, whose rule over Israel would extend to the ends of the earth. So, does God still mean it? Is God still true to this promise? What's the point in circumcision, Romans chapter 3 asks? Does it have any value? Or chapter 11, verse 1, a similar kind of thing there. I ask then, did God reject his people? Now, you see, we don't feel this problem particularly, I don't think. At least white Australians don't feel this problem. Because um, for white Australians, uh, many of us know the dangers of favouritism and uh, and racism and nationalism. And, And so we say the wonderful thing about the gospel is it says we're all equal in Jesus. We're all made by God in his image. We're all equally uh, guilty as rebels against God in need of his mercy. And we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so we go, yeah, it's, it's fine. Jews and Gentiles, everybody, all made by God, guilty before God, saved by God. What's the problem? Yeah? And yes, that's true. The Bible does go beyond favoritism and nationalism and racism. And it says, no, 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 um, God, that, is, that is true. And at the same time, and at the same time, it says there is also something about being a biological Jew that's special. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. In chapter 11, verse 24, they're called the natural branches. That there's something natural about them being, becoming Christians. In 11 verse 28, they're called loved on account of the patriarchs, that even the rebellious, unbelieving Jewish person is still loved in a way. And in 15 verses 26 to 27, he says, any Gentile Christian, any Christian who's not Jewish kind of owes it to the Jews. Now, we don't think that way. We go, well, why do I owe it to them? The gospel came from God, Not, not from them. But that's not actually biblical thinking. The Bible says the gospel came from God through his Messiah who was born a Jew. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus said. And so there is a kind of way that even today, those who aren't Jews are special in God's sight, that those of us who aren't Jews are guests brought in by God's amazing grace in his gospel, that the gospel is being grafted in to God's promises to Israel. And so the problem is, why aren't more Jewish people Christians? And the answer we get in Romans chapter 9 is that God was always about choosing a sum, that not all of the biological people are the true chosen people. That's a, not just a New Testament issue. This is not just a Christian gospel issue. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 6. It's not as though God's word had failed. Not all those who are descended from Israel are 
Israel, that is truly Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children, that is truly Abraham's children. On the contrary, and then he goes on and says, even going back to Abraham, Abraham had two kids, one of them was the true child of the promise. And then you go forward a generation, same thing again, Isaac had two kids, one of them was the child of the promise. It's all the way through the Bible, all the way through the Old Testament. Not everyone biologically, nationally, socially part of the people of promise were the true spiritual elect Jews, people of God, promise promise receivers in all its blessing. At the end of the chapter, he says it was God's promised plan to save people who were not Jews. Look at verse 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. 9.25, and I'll call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And God's promised plan has always been to save a remnant of those who are Jews. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. He says something similar in the start of chapter 11. He says, uh, in the days of Elijah, Elijah thought, I'm the only one left. And God said, no, 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 I've reserved a remnant. Not all, but some. There is a remnant chosen by my grace. 7,000 who haven't bowed the knees to Baal. Another example from another part of Bible history. God chooses some, God hardens others. And it's true today. Not all even here who gather as a part of the community of God's people at Cornerstone may necessarily be truly God's people saved in all eternity. Even though you are loved and your children are loved as being part of the Christian um, uh, church as you grow up, not all of you will necessarily be God's chosen people in all eternity. Not all the people of Israel in the world, not all the human race in the world Not everyone who grows up in a Christian family or comes to an evangelistic course or has some kind of conversion experience will truly be spiritually Christian and remain Christian to the end. So then why does God blame us, he asks. You know, if if God is choosing and deciding, why does God blame us? Look at 9 verse 14. Uh, What should we say? Is God unjust? No, not at all. As he said to Moses, 9.15, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't depend, therefore, on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. But then you might ask, why does God still blame us for who, he, who resists his will? You see, it? God's got this free prerogative. He can do what he chooses. He's God. Now, God can't do what is fundamentally impossible because a fundamentally impossible thing's not really a thing. So you, the campus, you'll get someone clever in their own eyes come up to you with this gotcha that they think that you've never heard before. Um, and it's very hard to patiently listen and go, oh, okay, oh, okay, yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, but, but, you know, and they'll say, oh, can God build a rock so heavy that God can't lift it? 
<laughs> they think they've got you, right? Because like, well, if God built a rock so heavy he can't lift it, then he can't lift it so he's not all-powerful. But if he can't make it, then he's not all-powerful. It's a silly question because there's no such thing as a rock too heavy God can't lift. It's like asking, when is the equator? Or, you know, why is purple? Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's a non-question. It's a silliness question, yeah? Um, uh, uh, God can't do fundamentally impossible things, yes. Um, and God can't do wicked or unjust things because he is always true in his own character of truth and love. But his mercy on somebody, him choosing to be merciful on, a, on someone who has turned from wandered and rebelled and guilty, that he's not bound logically or morally to save. He's free to save. He's not bound morally and logically to save. He's free to save. People ask, why does God punish me for not believing in him? Which, of course, is not quite the way to phrase the question. I I have to say to them, no, no, no. It's not that God punishes you just for not believing in him, as if God is especially precious and there's nothing he can stand as much as someone not believing in him. And it makes him furious. No. In the first place, we need to say, no, 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 we are already, before gospel Jesus believing, before any of that enters the question, the human race is already guilty of having turned from God. We already stand under his judgment, his punishment, guilt before him. Yeah? And so that when I refuse to receive Jesus, I remain in a state of guilt that I was already in. Now, more could be said on that, but you see, God's free mercy is free mercy. Now, I want to know why God, didn't choose, why God didn't stop sin to begin with. Why did he allow it as a part of his plan? I want to know why God doesn't just save everybody. He could, but why doesn't he choose to save everybody? If I were God, I say. Surely it makes sense for God, I say. But of course, I'm not God. I'm not. I don't know what would make sense if I were God because I've never been him and never will be. And so it's a bit of a silliness to say, well, surely God would. Oh, really? That's the point of verse 20, verse 19 and 20. Why does God still blame us? Who resists his will? Verse 20, who are you? Who are you? Who am I to talk back to God? I have no clue what it's like. When it comes to the, the uh, matters of God's self-revealed character and nature, I can talk back to God. But when it comes to matters of what would make sense from the vantage point of a transcendent, timeless being interacting with time, it's beyond my understanding. Who am I to talk back to God? Who, how can I know? How can I talk back? How can I see things from his point of view? If God exists, if God is all-powerful, then there are some things beyond me. And so the Bible just presents these two realities. God is all-powerful, saves who he wants to save, hardens whom he wants to harden, and humans are responsible and, and consciously choose and decide and obey. God is all-powerful in a way which doesn't make us robots, And we are responsible in a way which doesn't make God surprised or reactionary. And we just get these two truths taught in Scripture. 
and to some extent we're left going, this is beyond how these things fit together, beyond my human understanding. This is dealing with time and eternity. This is dealing with uh, created and creator. Pot and potter, as he says there. Formed and former. We see this all the way through the university campuses anyway. Psychology asks, is it nature or nurture? The answer's both. Lawyers ask, is it legal responsibility or mitigating circumstances? It's both. Uh, Sociologists and uh, philosophy arts students ask, is it individual identity or systemic structures of privilege? It's both. Um, Is it free will or determinism in philosophy? It's both. Is it causation or chance in science? Everywhere we deal with versions of this, in a small part, similar to something of the same issue, God is, is freely rules and yet we are morally responsible. Now that's the most deep, long and tricky part of the whole sermon. But what does it mean for you? It means you can't boast. That's what verse 11 and 12 are about. You can't say... Well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm so nice. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm just smart and I got it. How come they out there don't get it? No, no, no. I can't boast. It was God's free choice, God's sovereign mercy alone. How dare you boast about being... There's something extremely poor taste, isn't there, about boasting. It's like, um, what was it, a few years ago when the, one of our relay teams in one of the Olympics, was it, or the Commonwealth, won the relay and then proceeded to jump in the water and celebrate while the rest of the swimmers were still finishing the race? That's really poor taste, isn't it? How much more for a Christian saved by God's free mercy to boast? Poor taste. Can't boast. Only able to choose Christ at all because of God's sovereign mercy. And God can be glorified, this is the second point of reflection, God can be glorified actually in both judgment and salvation. Verse 17, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I may display my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, that's to Pharaoh. Or verses 22 to 24, what if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known? bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? That's a hard truth, that one. But part of seeing things with God's mind is realising the great reality that God is glorified in mercy in the gospel. Yes, that's easier to grasp. But also the stern reality that God can be glorified in judgment too. But there's a kind of stern but good praise that comes for God's justice, that he will confront wickedness, he'll confront evil, that he'll bring down the the boastful and the cruel and the abusive. It's a harder truth, but it's still a form of God's glory. And even, as he says in verse 22 and 23, something of this glory of God in judgment shines a light on the relief of God's glory and mercy. Secondly then, and we speed up a little now, 
the human explanation for Jewish unbelief. Because you see, having talked about predestination and and God's sovereign control, this passage also talks about uh, human responsibility very clearly. It says both. And so uh, at the end of chapter 9 there, he says um, the Jews didn't receive Jesus, the, the law of righteousness that pointed to Jesus, they didn't receive it. And then the people who weren't Jews become righteous by faith. Why is this? Verse 32, because they pursued it not by faith but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and the one who trusts in him will never be put to to shame. That is, they had the promises of God, they had the law of God, but rather than seeing it as ultimately pointing to Jesus to come, as 10 verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law, they focused on the law. They focused on being Jewish, on their difference from the world, on their moral performance, on their religious sincerity. And they didn't realise the whole thing, the whole promises, the laws, the temple, the, the, the psalm, all pointing us to Jesus. Verse 3 of chapter 10, they didn't know the righteousness that comes from God and they sought to establish a righteousness of their own. Chapter 10 is an interesting little passage, just that starting bit actually, because it reminds us that even though the Bible teaching of sin is true, that all of us are under sin and that no one truly seeks God, without his spiritual intervention. That's Romans nine, uh, 8 says that, that uh, the sinful mind is hostile to God, it can't please God, doesn't want to please God. But interestingly here in chapter 10, he says, from a human experience point of view, a sinner can be, verse 2, zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now that's just a Bible verse sta- saying what we meet all the time. Not every person I meet who's an atheist is mean, nasty, wringing their hands all the time, trying to do the worst thing. A lot of them, from their point of view, really want to try and be good people. And they're trying to be kind, and they're considerate of my faith. They can even say, I can see why that's beautiful to you. They don't say, I am a child of the devil. I hate all things that belong to the light. Well, some of them do, but many don't, you see? So from a human point of view, a person can be seeking for God in a way, even though fundamentally, spiritually, they're enemies of God, so their seeking will always be frustrated. And even though uh, mentally they're darkened to the truths of God, and so they'll never trust it with a saving faith without God's mercy. In 10 verses 5 to 11, he contrasts Faith and law, the difference between the misguided pursuit of the Jew and the path they should have taken. Verse 5, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your heart, 
And in your mouth, that is the word of faith we're proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a really interesting use of the Old Testament there, of Deuteronomy 30, but we don't have time for that today. The big point, however, is to say the Jews here are misguided. They're pursuing the law on its own terms to obey it enough to please God. Instead of seeing the big picture of the law as pointing to the promise of God in Jesus Christ. Their zeal is misguided. They, they're not receiving him, they're not hearing him, they're not trusting him. Although, as 16 to 21 says, they have the law, they've heard the law, they understand the law, but they are, verse 21, disobedient and obstinate. So, what does this section mean for us? First, we must keep realising that the message of Jesus can be freely offered to anybody. Anybody here? Anybody out there? For salvation is not by pursuing a law of righteousness and striving to obey it all. It's not by zeal for God and good intentions that I get to heaven. It's not by establishing your own righteousness. It's not by somehow bringing the blessing of God down. Righteousness and salvation and life are found in Jesus, trusting in him, and then you'll never be put to shame. For everyone who trusts in him, verse 4. Righteousness comes from God's merciful initiative. We don't have to bring him down. He freely comes. We don't need to raise Jesus up. He raises by his own power and might. It's God's work done for us. So that all we have to do, verse 9, is confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we'll be saved. And therefore it's for everybody, verse 11 and 12. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There's no difference. And so I urge you to keep having a deep concern to see the gospel preached to all in your church, in your workplaces, in the nations, at the university, in the mall. There's a logic that's necessarily built in here, he says. How, verse 14, can they call on one they haven't believed in? And how, verse 14, can they believe in one they haven't heard about? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? The very same section of the Bible which speaks of predestination and election talks about evangelism and missionary sending. Election and evangelism go together. Anyone who claims that Calvinism and predestinarianism is a, is a suffocator for evangelism doesn't know the Bible, doesn't know church history. Confidence that God has his people gives me confidence to wait it out. I was speaking with some missionaries just this week who said we were there in Mongolia when it was hard soil, slow work, and then to our joy we watched as suddenly the, the, the mission field exploded. 
<laughs> and so we moved on somewhere else to Tajikistan. I can't say that one. Um, we moved on to the next place. And time and again, we know God has his people. And so we'll go and wait it out for years in Japan or in France or in the 1040 window or in Australia where the soil is hard like ploughing concrete where the word seems to bounce off people's foreheads that are as hard as the people of Ezekiel's day because God has his people. Confidence in God's salvation and God's sovereignty fuels evangelistic concern. So I encourage you to continue, brothers and sisters. Give to mission. Pray for mission. Allow change and inconvenience to take place for the sake of mission. Roll up your sleeves to serve as God enables you for the cause of evangelism. Look for opportunities personally where you can speak of your Christian faith. And consider some of you, young and maybe even not so young, whether to give up your whole life trajectory to be a full-time missionary. And lastly, God hasn't finished with the people of Israel. God hasn't written off the biological people entirely. He's preserved a remnant, first of all. Yeah? All through these chapters, there's a remnant. Not all Israel are Israel, 6 verses 9, uh, 9 verse 6 and following. God will preserve a remnant, 9 verse 27 and following. So too now there's a remnant chosen by grace, 11 verse 5 says. But a remnant here, a remnant, some, some Jewish people today become Christians, praise God. Why has God allowed it this way? Well, the first reason we've already seen is because God can do what he pleases. And he's chosen always to save some. But there's a little more in chapter 11. A second reason is so that God can bring salvation to every other nation. Israel sinned, became guilty, no better than any other nation. So the prophets declare to Israel they are not a people. And this means that if God will save Israel who have become not the people of God, there's no reason why he couldn't save all the others who are not the people of God. That's the prophet logic in Isaiah or Ezekiel and elsewhere. You actually see it in uh, the end of chapter 9. Those quotes from Hosea, verse 25 and 26, they're quoted about the Gentiles here. You go back to their original context, you'll see they're actually about Israel. That God declared Israel in in her faithlessness to be not my people, not my loved one. And yet God says, in the future, I will win back my people who've become not my people. I'll win back a loved one from those who are not my loved one. And so what God now will do for faithless Israel, there's no reason he can't do for all. And so we see that all through chapter 11. Say, for example, verse 11 and 12. Did the Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Or verse 32, God has bound all people over to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. So, God can do what he likes. God is bringing salvation to the world. 
Next reason, God is arousing Israel to envy. Arousing Israel to envy. Look at 11 verse 11 again. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Or verse 15, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Verse 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope I may arouse my own people to envy and save some. Can I say, this is actually a principle for Christian ministry today. If a Christian walks away from Jesus, don't keep badgering them. Warn them, encourage them to return. But there comes a point when you need to say, I'll let you wander. And I'll carry on with those who are going to take God seriously with the hope that you'll look in and remember and envy what you once had and turn back. Sometimes I can drive them further away by badgering and hoping and wooing and or youth ministry. The worst thing you can do to your youth leaders is say to them, why can't you make youth group as low a bar as possible, as fun as possible, so unbelieving Johnny and Jenny keep liking to come because there's not too much God in it? I know you mean well because you, you really want your kids to be saved and, and, John and Johnny and Jenny don't want to come anymore because it's all Bible, it's all God and it's, they're all a bit too serious. But the worst thing you could do is say, can't you make Bible youth group less serious, less Christian, more fun? No. What we need to do is encourage our youth leaders to take God seriously, to speak the gospel seriously, so that that might mean some of the kids who've grown up in the church have their unbelief exposed so that then they can be truly one. When they look back and go, oh, now there's all these non-Christian kids coming to youth group and getting converted and taking God seriously and delighting in the Lord. What have they got that I don't have? They're annoying. This is my church. I used to be the cool kid at church and now I'm on the outer. Cool kid in church is a bit tragic, isn't it? Um, that then they might come back and be one indeed. A big theme of this section is about humility again. We must rely on God's mercy. We cannot boast. All gifts come from God. Paul says to the Gentiles, don't boast if you're saved at the moment. You're grafted in because of their unbelief and they can be grafted back in again. Don't boast. You're only here by the grace of God. Look, we've gone over time, so I'll just close with this point. Uh, God, uh, at the end of the passage, it seems there's a future hope for a larger rescue of the Gentiles. I think that's something of what 25 to 27 suggest, that before Christ's return a larger harvest of Jews will be saved, that God hasn't finished his saving work amongst the biological Jews. But in the end, as we said at the beginning, the passage, passage ends with praise and worship and adoration, not with intellectual debate and puzzled looks, not with confusion and discouragement, but praise. Praise to God and his wisdom and knowledge. Praise to God's judgments that are beyond my criticism. Praise to God's paths that I can't search out. 
God's mind that I cannot instruct or fully know, God's self-sufficiency that I can't give anything to God, that God must repay him. God's sovereignty, God's grace, God's goodness, from him, through him, to him, or everything. To him be the glory. In the end, salvation. Salvation leads to worship. Whole lives, as chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, whole lives offered up as sacrifices of worship to the glorious, sovereign, saviour God. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, we thank you for these rich, deep truths. We ask your mercy for our hard hearts, our boasting, our doubting, our sin. And we pray with great joy knowing that when we come to you in repentance, we find sure welcome and salvation in the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Have mercy on all nations. Have mercy on the historic people of Israel. And through your mercy, bring yourself the special glory of your saving grace. And move us, we ask, to share in that saving work in the world. In Jesus' name, by the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.